everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candice. I'm your host, Candice Horback. Before we start this week's episode, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandice.com and sign up for our Patreon account. You get early access to episodes, bonus content, and live AMAs every month. This week, we have Kevin Selden. He is the host of the DILF podcast. That's the dad I'd like to friend. He's a new dad and his podcast gets a ton of attention in the parenting world with new dads and parents in general. He has great advice. I really enjoyed talking with him and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, thanks for joining us today, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. So for those of you that aren't familiar with his work, he is the host of the DILF podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, definitely. Well, it will kind of give a little context into my life as a parent and what we're going to be talking about today as well. So basically, I have run my own social impact firm for almost a decade. And I started it out of college and I graduated. I wanted to make an impact in the world. And very bright-eyed and ignorant, I just kind of said, let me start a company. I don't really know what I wanted to do, but I know I don't want to be stuck wearing just one hat. You don't have a company tell me this one thing that I have to do. So I started a company using an array of my skill sets. And slowly but surely, I, as luck would have it, I just kind of found gigs and I ended up working with Vanity Fair and with NBC Universal and The Roots. And so I was able to build a cool brand. And then I set my sights on love and uh, and searched for my wife, a hopeless romantic, kind of desperately looking everywhere. I actually wrote a dating book on kind of ways to find love and then used my own dating book to find my wife. You know, it was like, it's called target practice. And it was, it was all <laughs> these different types of people to target. And I never have even published the book yet. It's actually, I've been working on figuring out <laughs> the logistics of that. But basically met my wife and we work polar opposites. She is definitely not as sensitive as me. <laughs> I'm very much about feelings and vulnerabilities. And my wife thinks that feelings are lame and likes to express it consistently. Communication is not her favorite thing. But basically, we she was every one of my childhood crushes rolled into one from Punky Brewster to Brenda Walsh. And basically, once we got married... After about a year, we started to talk about the topic of having a family, which I was ecstatic because I've always wanted to be a dad. But it was not as easy as we thought it would be. Health concerns came up. And basically, it was my wife's a diabetic. And basically, it just didn't go as quickly as we wanted. And I think my wife wasn't actually ready. And so it took us a few years. And throughout that time, I didn't realize the reason was that she wasn't ready. So I just didn't understand why it wasn't happening and all of my friends were getting pregnant and I actually pushed a lot of my friends away and pushed away the support network that I had built over the years. And I got very depressed. And over that five-year period, by the end, I started doing a lot of writing. I actually got signed by a big agency and I was doing writing, but it was one of those things where I, I started to just do things by rote I lost my passion for life. I dropped 
big clients and I pushed people away and I just was not in a good place. And so when we finally got pregnant, I thought that it would be this cathartic experience, but it wasn't. I went into panic mode because my wife is diabetic and, and it was a very difficult pregnancy. And then when we finally gave birth, it was a very traumatic labor. My wife was rushed to the to surgery after and my baby was rushed to the NICU. And so I never got that beautiful picture that everyone has holding their baby, like everything was so easy and perfect. And days later, when we came home, we went into that newborn baby mode. And so I never got that time to really relax. So I decided to take an extended paternity leave, which was something that I am a big advocate for paternity leave, a dadvocate, if you will. <laughs> and I, I basically decided to take an extended paternity leave. And when my wife kind of went back to work, that's when the bonding really began with my son. And as amazing as it was, I realized that it was extremely lonely. There's not a support network for dads out there. Even in 2020, there's really not a built-in structure to support men expressing feelings, let alone a real structure for them to have camaraderie with other dads. And that's when the idea of the podcast came. And so it took a few months with a newborn baby to get things up and running. But at the beginning of the year, I launched the DILF podcast, which is Dad I'd Like to Friend. And slowly but surely, we, we've gotten on the charts and craziest things. We broke into the top 50 on iTunes of parenting podcasts in Germany and Denmark, in Canada, in the US, in France, it was like all French titles and then DILF and then more French. <laughs> I don't really understand <laughs> who in France is listening, but it's gotten some good attention. We got featured by People Magazine and we slowly but surely have just, we've had some great conversations and it was beautiful for me to realize how much other men and other dads were feeling the same thing. And slowly but surely building a space for dads to talk about their feelings, for men to express what they're going through and make us realize that we're not alone and that there are many dads that we would all like to friend out there. So that was a very long story short, but that's the history. No, I think that's so beautiful. And you touch on like a lot of really important points. I think that fatherhood is like such a crucial part of like the family unit of bringing up a child. And we, for some reason, it's really hard to kind of incorporate and like bring you along the journey, right? Because like we're the ones that are pregnant. So you don't really get to like experience that in the same way that we do. And then depending on the pregnancy, you know, if it's like difficult, then that might even be more alienating for the couple and to like have the dad involved because he's like, there's nothing I can do to help, like literally nothing I can do. So then that can kind of push it away a little bit more. Then you talk about the traumatic birth, right? And then no one's prepared for that. No one knows if that's going to be you. We actually had a pretty rough go as well. Like I had a cakewalk of a pregnancy. So I, we just kind of assumed that labor was going to be the same. He was born with like a nuchal cord situation, like APGAR of zero. So he had to get rushed to NICU and we spent like a week there and it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And then I can't really speak to your experience, but I know it was difficult for you because you're not only worried about the baby, you're worried about me. And I think that there's like just like this natural protection that the husband has over the wife and the baby. So it's 
a whole different kind of trauma for you to experience. And then if you talk about not having paid time off, like if you have these traumas, right? So how do you be able to like kind of recover, heal, enjoy that newborn stage when you're worried about not getting paid, not making your bills, and then having to go back to work in like a month for realistically for a lot of people? Yeah, it's tough. And not even just – obviously, the money is a huge thing. For us, we just – decided I would that I would work off my savings. I run my own company. So I was able to have some of the people that work with me pick up some of the slack during that time period. It was also just about the passion, going through the motions of work when you are a lead is hard. And my company is all about inspiration, inspiring brands to do better, inspiring individuals to do better. We work with a lot of very high profile companies and individuals. And I wasn't mentally there. I wasn't giving it what I wanted to give. In fact, at the time, I think it was like 2017, we got pregnant at the end of 2018. And basically, I I was pitching a show to CBS because I started doing a lot more writing at that time while I was running my social impact firm. And there was a point where I said, I wouldn't even watch this show. I don't want to write this. I don't want to pitch this because I don't even like what we have at this point. And yes, it had to do with the corporate entity and the way CBS was changing everything with regards to the show, but I just wasn't passionate about so many things. So that's when I decided to, I had launched something called Keldoff Labs, which is my company is called Keldoff, kind of an experimental think tank. And that's when I said, you know, I'm going to kind of get into podcasting and publishing through my company and use those resources to launch something to support dads because that will make as much of a social impact as anything. Yeah, we were insanely fortunate during this this entire process because we had some cash flow through stuff that we didn't really have to manage. But even throughout the entire process, like we even talked about, like we don't, I don't know how other fathers who, or even like mothers who have like, they survive off of their dual income and they only take limited time off. And they, like she said, like you don't have time to process, especially if something traumatic happens, you don't have time to actually process it. And we know firsthand, like it takes more time than you'd expect to process something like that. Oh yeah. And it's even a birth alone, I'd imagine, like even without the like trauma, it's probably something still to process, right? There's a lot of emotions floating around. And for guys who are like your immediate reaction is to like bottle it up and like push those emotions aside, right? Because it's what we're trained to do as men. You could spend a year processing that kinds of stuff. Oh, absolutely. The funny thing is, so I my father is exactly as you're describing. I don't know how I became what I've become, but I do not bottle anything up. I think my wife wishes that I would. I think most people in my life wishes I wish I would bottle more up. I'm not really built that way or capable of it. But a lot of my energy was to getting my wife to open up and to not bottle up her emotions, which obviously in my opinion, could affect the baby a lot during a pregnancy. 100%. And it was, I did the entire registry because I thought, well, I can't get involved that much with, I can't carry baby or I would. And so basically, (laughs) at least I can understand what all these things are. We launched an Expect the Unexpected series. We launched sub-series as part of the podcast. So we have a co-parenting series where my wife and I kind of come together and very brutally honest, have almost a couples therapy session and talk about whatever we're dealing with at the present. 
And simultaneously with this Expect the Unexpected series, I was shocked at realizing that it is a very common thing for all of us. We are worried about our wives. We're worried about the baby's health. And so we don't even take a moment to think about how we're feeling. Mm-hmm. And the big thing in the Expected Unexpected series is to talk about the guy's fears while they're pregnant and then bring them back six months later once they have a baby and kind of discuss how they matched up. But the biggest thing that comes about when we talk about fears is the dad never addresses his own. It's always about the wife. It's always about the baby. It's, it takes a lot to get a dad to break down the walls, to be able to think like it's a selfish thing, which it's not getting in touch with your own feelings about, are you scared to become a dad? How do you feel about all of these aspects? And then they just get bottled up for five years as you deal with the chaos until you have a kid that's a little older. And some dads break under the pressure I found. And it's, we or longer. That. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what well, you put her, I put her in like a box, right? This box. And I was like this energy ninja, making sure that like nothing bad would pierce this box, even right. like throughout the entire pregnancy, throughout the post-pregnancy. And like, you are the, this like usher of protection and security you feel like you have to be. And there's no other way, right? There's no other way because you you're not the one growing a human. Yes. And you want to feel like you're contributing in some way, right? And society backs you up in that, mm-hmm. in that culturally, we're all told that we're supposed to be the protectors and we are the security and we need to provide the money. In the last episode of my podcast, I talked with a PhD who is also a dad, and he kind of has the research to back up a lot of the theories that we're talking about and that we discuss on the podcast. And he had this great story about in the 60s, there was this guy who was a kind of a stay-at-home dad at that time. And he was playing with his kid in the park and gushing with some woman he met and talking about how much he loved his son. And it was so wonderful. And at the end of him gushing, the woman turned to him and said, that's so nice. I hope you find some work soon because it seems like you have a bit too much time on your hands. Oh my gosh. I love that story because I feel like not that much has changed during paternity leave. And even now when I'm with my son, people are like, oh, that's cute. You're babysitting. And we've heard that cliche so much, but it's not done. And I don't know how, but so many of us dads want to be actively involved, but societally, we're not really allowed that freedom to wear that multitude of hats. That's interesting. Yeah, going back to like the beginning, when you find out you're pregnant and you have like all of a sudden nine months ahead of you, it's not like work. There's no moving deadlines. Like biology is pretty much set in stone, like the dates, right? What are some things that you did to prepare? That's a great question. Well, first of all, we took a pregnancy test. I actually just wrote an article about that that should be out soon. We took a pregnancy test and it was negative. And I was heartbroken because my wife got her period in December. I insisted we had sex every day because it had been five years. And I was like, I was not giving up. This is our chance, (laughs) you know? And so we pushed and then I was sure this is, I don't know how PC this podcast is. It's not um, at all. No. So her boobs were sensitive. And so I was like, what? That, wait, this worked. That's a sign. (laughs) And so I was very excited and we took a pregnancy test and it was negative. And I was like, oh my God, heartbroken again. Like we have wasted so many pregnancy tests. And then like, you know, there's the cheapskate in me that's like, can we rinse it off and do it again next week? Because (laughs) like, do we have to buy another one? And basically we 
my wife went to the doctor and for the first time, I think she was finally fed up, you know, because before, I don't know if she was ready or, or fully wanted it. She said, what the F do I have to do? And the doctor said, let's just take a test just to be sure. She was like, I already did that. And they took it. And then she was like, you're pregnant. And so we just took it a week early. So, you know, most people find out like two months in Mm -hmm. and they're like, what? We found out like exactly the day. So it's a very long pregnancy. We found out very, very early on. And so for us, in answer to your question, I started to do the registry. I worked on the nursery and kind of custom did a lot of things in there. I feel like I had been planning it for most of my life, becoming a dad. So it was kind of manifesting all of those things. And more so than that, I think my prep work, you can only do so much thinking about your feelings, which I did not do. Ironically, the most empathetic guy in the world, I never took a second to think about my own feelings. Because like everyone, I was in panic mode for nine months. And I was worried about my wife, who's a diabetic, and worried about the baby's health. And we had a doctor's appointment, I kid you not, almost every week. Because high risk, you have two doctors. And so we went for checkups consistently. People are like, did you, you know, how many ultrasounds, you know, those little pictures they take? They're like, oh yeah, we got one. I'm like, we have 80,000 because we, <laughs> every time we went, they would be like, you want a different angle? It was almost like a photo shoot inside my wife's belly every time because we had so many being high risk. It's one of those things where I never took a moment to think about my feelings until I started the podcast, to be honest. Like it's been extremely cathartic for me because I don't think I ever realized that I wasn't delving deep. I was so busy in my life trying to get others to delve deep and getting my wife's guard down that once we got pregnant, I just was oblivious to my own feelings. And the biggest prep work that I did was less when we came, became pregnant and more when the baby came out, I demanded night feeds. And I actually highly recommend this to dads because I feel like the baby, I thought it was going to be a natural. I was very cocky. And the baby, every time the baby would cry, I would rock him. He didn't want me. My wife would touch him. He would stop immediately. And I was like, what the F is this bond that you have? You know, I tried to talk to him while he was in the womb. I tried to bond, (laughs) but it was just, there's something about their connection. And my wife was insecure thinking that she wouldn't have that connection. And sure enough, I was the one who was the odd man out. And I was there on paternity leave while she was maternity leave. So I said, well, if she lucky enough was able to breastfeed, which I think is a wonderful thing. But at nights, I asked her to pump for a bottle. And I mean, my son didn't know who was giving him the bottle because he was half asleep. So he didn't complain. I got bonding time. And also it made it easier to transition him into the crib. And I felt like I actually had a purpose, which I think a lot of dads don't feel empowered during that beginning period. That's something we're going to be talking about on the next episode with my wife, when we do our co-parenting thing, because I feel like so many wives wear so many hats and they're used to it and they don't want to burden the husband, but then they get overburdened and then they're irritated at the husband. And I feel like it'd be a beautiful thing to empower the husband and say, you do it your way and maybe you'll teach me something new. And we actually had to do that in flip because when I took paternity leave, I really started to create all my own ways of doing things. And my wife was like, what's happening? You know, and I had that tendency to be like, no, you have to do it exactly like this. This is what he likes. But then you have this kid that only likes things one way 
And so it's such a pleasure to have your two individual ways of doing it. No, I totally agree. We had a similar situation. So he was home, again, work from home. So like he's here the entire time. And his main way, I think, of contributing was you would put the baby down for like naps or bedtime. So we had a snoo and we thought it was going to be like this savior. It didn't really do a lot for us. It helped, but it he still needed assistance falling asleep. So Eric would go upstairs and he had like this very special choreographed way that he would rock and shush and move about to get the baby to fall asleep. And it worked like a charm. But then when it was my turn to do it and he was super cranky, then I'm like, it's not working. So he would have to like come up. He's like, you're doing it wrong. You have to kind of like do it this fast and then at this angle, then you turn this way. I mean, in a way it's a beautiful thing because then he had like a sense of confidence and that was something that he really mastered and that was like his time that was just, you know, the baby and him. And then it like kind of forced me to kind of figure out, well, how am I going to sue the baby when he's fussy and doesn't want to go down? But if I didn't have like... I guess like that surrender and like let him have his thing, if you will, then it could have created a lot more strife and like alienated him a little bit more. So I think it's really important for the moms to allow the dad in and maybe like flounder a little bit. No one knows how to change a diaper at the beginning. Like we both did a really awkward job when we were in the NICU, especially with all the wires. Like where, like where does anything go? So I think you both kind of have to find your way. And I think because like, we carried the baby and there's like a little bit of that maternal instinct. Maybe we we can become like overbearing and we're like, no, like I'm the one that's going to do this or I strictly want to breastfeed. I don't want to do any bottles or pumping is annoying. So I don't want to have to pump and get strapped up and feel like uncomfortable. But it's about like give and take and then doing what you can as the mom, as the wife to kind of like make room for your partner. I couldn't agree more. I think that something interesting that happened with us in the power dynamic, I think that because the moms get so much naturally and they get so much attention and love naturally, that I feel like when dads figure out something that works, it's kind of like a, oh my God, no, this is how you do it. And I feel like in some ways, seeing it from the other side, I think that probably you could tell me, Candace, but I feel like it's a little that way for moms probably too. And that like, I've learned this way. And like, I'm so proud of myself that this must be the way I, I've invented gold, mm-hmm. you know, 100%. and you feel like <laughs> you need to teach the world. Mm-hmm. We ironically, we made it, this is very much my relationship with my wife. We made it a bit of a competition. So then when I would get him to sleep in the crib, I would brag about it the next day. And she'd be like, how did you do it? And I'm like, I'm not telling you my secrets. You know, like <laughs> instead of helping her along, I would kind of, you know, I guess you'll have to figure it out. Oh, he's crying. I'm not going to, I know how to stop it. But, you know, <laughs> and it cruel. just became this, this kind of joke with us. I mean, it, it, in a good way, it forced us each to to come up with our own kind of methods, but she always, whenever we put him down for nap, she's always like, how'd you get him down so fast? And I'm like, I'll never tell, you know, that's <laughs> my, that's my little secrets. Have you ever heard of Alexander technique? No. So it's something I learned at college. It was oddly enough. It was like a posture class that I took at Northwestern that was one of my favorite courses of all the money you spend to go to college and all the courses I took, a posture class was something that I enjoyed. It's ways to move your body that don't put as much pressure and weight and strain. So when you sit down, instead of like plopping down, it's like a way to like sit down gently or stand up without your muscles all contracting. 
And there's a Alexander Technique massage that you can give to someone to just kind of weightlessly take the strain out of their neck and their arms. And I, I remembered it years later when we had my son and I use it to relax him a lot. And just the concept of when I'm holding him, everything's got to be weightless, you know, so his head can never just sit there because like I put it against my cheek or I put it on my shoulder and I make sure his arms are just dangling because I feel like the more weightless he is, but don't tell my wife that because that's my little secret. She <laughs> she's not aware of the Alexander technique. Oh, that's so neat. I'm going to try mm-hmm. that. Look yeah, it up. Cool. Yeah. Just make sure there's no kind of weight at all or else he's exerting energy and then it's hard to let go. Mm-hmm. We could have used that tonight or last night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess what would be some of like your pieces of advice for fathers that aren't naturally like driven to be a dad or maybe just out of like fear or ignorance? Like how do you kind of like spark that desire for involvement? Well, I would say that that is something where the wife or partner, whatever kind of partner you have, is an important piece because I think that when that happens, sometimes the partner then can take on more. It doesn't help in the way you think it would. I think it actually alienates the dad more and makes them feel like, well, then I'm not needed. I'm not necessary. And so I think that if a partner can put more responsibility where you're kind of forced to do it, I didn't step up as much as I have always wanted to be a father. I don't feel that I truly stepped up until my wife went back to work. And it was like, wait, what is what is the nap schedule? You know, <laughs> what is the feeding schedule? And it was like I had to kind of create that. Even though I was there for three months with her, I don't even think I understood the concept of a feeding schedule because my wife was just, he was always on the boob. He was crying or on the boob or sleeping. So I didn't really understand the cycle. And once I kind of did that and the weight was on me, all of a sudden – a lot of our lack of desire, I think, is is a version of fear that converts into a wall that says, I'm not interested. Because I don't know many dads who have no interest in their kid. Honestly, I know there's this trope and there's so many theories that, that dads are not invested or emotional individuals. But I've talked to a lot of dads through the DILF podcast thus far and throughout my life. And I've not met many men without feelings. I've met many men with a lot of walls built up and like Mm -hmm. scar tissue that prevents them from expressing it. And a lot of dads who had so much fear or were so not empowered as a dad that they felt distanced and felt like their kid would be better off without them there. But no one, no one that deep down didn't have the desire or love. And I feel like it's accessing that and getting through the fears and putting the weight on your shoulders to say, oh, first of all, this is. Like when you have your kid and your kid's trying to do something, you can do it for them or you can patiently wait until they figure it out. And the look on a baby's face when they figure out something for the first time is so amazingly unforgettable. And I feel like it's the same with every one of us as humans. Mm -hmm. So if a partner can allow dad the space to figure it out, that look and that achievement when it is figured out with their kid is a bond that just grows and grows and gets stronger and, and drops more walls. Does that answer the question? No, it totally does. Yeah, I think so. What's your opinion on that? So the original question was like, what are some... How to kind of get a guy, a dad that maybe is like either fearful, ignorant, or like avoidant of being involved and having that relationship with the baby. Mm. Yeah. 
the funny part about that is like the fear is is natural, I think, because it's just so much uncertainty. Absolutely. So the, and the only way around that, in my experience in life and anything that drives fear because of uncertainty is to develop clarity. And the best way to develop clarity is through like some sort of channel like like journaling or something where it's like you actually develop the clarity of what does it mean to be a father to you, right? Because we put meaning to things, whether it's the meaning of I'm uncertain about this and now it scares me, like that's putting meaning to it or actually developing the clarity yourself as to like what it means to actually show up as a father or a husband or whatever it might be. So I would say that like that is a great place to start for anybody. I know that's what I did for a lot of it. Yeah. And then preparation wise, it was like a matter of, I mean, we had, I don't know, you have seven months to figure it, yeah, we figure found it out the late. fuck out. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. found we, out two months. We find out two months <laughs> into it. You have seven months to figure it the fuck out. Read a book, read something, read a blog, listen to the DILF podcast, <laughs> right? <laughs> try, try and figure it out. For me, it was, okay, I knew that there was going to be this giant uncertainty I am the most, I'm way overly optimistic about just about everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that over optimism. That's a good quality to have. Yeah. It balances <laughs> us for yeah, sure. But then, we, we were both like, <laughs> we were both like, oh, this will be fine. We'll get a nanny. This won't affect uh, us too yeah. much. And mm-hmm. we were just like overly optimistic about the entire experience. But in the end, I knew that there was uncertainty. So like I, I've had like a meditation practice on and off for since college. And I, it's one of those like habits that never truly formed in a daily habit, but it's like one of those things that I do like every other day or something like that. So I took those months leading up to the actual birth to turn that into an actual strict habit, like brushing your teeth, just developing that like meditation routine, developing like a That's journaling. spectacular. Yeah, a journaling routine. I took a couple of online performance, like neuroscience performance courses, because I knew like trying to start and run businesses while trying to be a father and trying to be a good husband, like you need to be on your game. So I took a few like performance classes and these things are basically like, how do you operate at your full capacity? And I took those prior to actually like the actual birth. And I read a bunch of books and I like, in my head, I was like, I'm prepared. Like I'm doing the work. Like I'm there. The birth happens. Nick you for a week. We bring them home. Everything. Like (laughs) there was no preparation for that. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, I I was like so grateful that I was able to, you know, that saying where you, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall back to the level of your training. So when it comes to like stepping up in that moment, the training that I did and like doing performance courses or meditating or journaling or any of that kinds of stuff, like I was able to fall back on that. I was like so grateful that I had done that. But other than that, like there was like preparation wise for the actual experience. Like, I don't know if there's- The meditation probably helped a lot. I know the meditation helped a ton, but in the end, like you you just got to prepare to be unprepared for the whole process. I I think that's that's a brilliant way to say it. Yeah. Like expect the unexpected, be prepared to be unprepared. I feel like people who are too regimented in the way they do things are Mm going to be effed up the butt a little. It's just not not the way it goes. And I think the more available you are, the better. I think it was like episode 12. I talked to a beautiful artist and poet and his name's Joel. And we talked a lot about how meditation can help even in the smallest ways. I'm a huge fan of Headspace. And actually, for anyone that's unemployed out there, Headspace is now offering a free year for anyone that's unemployed. 
which is really cool. And for anyone who's dealing with stress as a parent, let alone through COVID. But I found that even 10 minutes, I think so many parents feel guilty if their partner's doing something. And so they feel like they need to be doing something. But I feel like if you are lucky enough to have a co-parent, my wife takes them in the morning because she likes mornings and she's a morning person. And I'm more at night and I put him to bed every night and bath. And so I take advantage of that when she has them in the morning, either I try and sleep or I do a 10 minute meditation with Headspace. And then when I'm up, I have so much more room and availability for him to have a temper tantrum than if I'm so tightly wound and just waiting for the temper tantrum and ready for me to lose my crap, you know? And that's why I think it's so important. Yeah. I had like so many times I tried to like filter through a lot of the training or a lot of like the books I've read in the past. Whenever I like deal with like a circumstance in which like I just can't figure out why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling or something like that. When you're with a child, right, a newborn, and you're trying to change his diaper or something, and he won't stop crying. There were times where I don't know what it was. It was like the amygdala or whatever. Some part of the brain just was like, there is something bad happening right now. And I can feel it all about my body. It was like so much anxiety. It, you know, it's just a lot of like that protective instinct. Right. Like I know mothers have it too, but there's more of a nurturing instinct when a baby cries. But only thing that was going through my mind was let's think like a hundred thousand years ago where if there's a threat. Where there's hunter gatherers and you're in a cave and the baby's crying, you're hiding from some sort of I don't know, saber-toothed tiger or something like that. Of course, what's going to happen if the baby cries and starts attracting the saber-toothed tiger, dad is going to go in protection mode. So there's like this trigger that uh, after doing some neuroscience research and stuff like that, that, there is a trigger that I believe that happens to a father when there's like a nonstop crying situation in which you feel like there is a threat somewhere. And without meditating and being able to get in between like your thoughts and your emotions, get him inside that gap. I feel like that's why when we were taking him home from the NICU, they made us watch a video on how not to shake your baby. Oh, yeah. Yes. And it I've was directed and you we it was directed towards that's men. That's crazy. But yet when you have the baby and he's crying in your ear for an hour, you're like, yeah. Oh, I kind of understand why they Yeah. But it was it was hundred percent directed towards men and there was a stat. Do you remember the stat? It's it almost, was like it's Almost always the It's dad. like 90 something percent of yeah. the dad when it's like shaking baby syndrome. Yeah. 90 something percent of it is from the father. And like that got me thinking because I was like, there was times I would obviously never shake my baby, but like there was times where I was like, man, I could feel this buildup of something happening. And I just had to explore. And I was yeah, like, why is this, like, why am I so angry at a cry? Yeah. Like, why is that anxiety? You and I had like why a very different response to it. Totally. I was like, I don't understand. Like, he's a baby. He cries. Like, get over it. And yeah. he, you would get so worked up. And then I remember you getting frustrated that there wasn't like more resources for men. Like, they just give you this like awful video that's like, hey, don't shake your baby. We'll see you at a checkup. There wasn't a lot of information. It was just like, hey, just don't do this. And everyone that watches this video, I would think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that's like, oh, I get that. I get why people could shake a baby. Like Everyone is like, how do you shake a baby? And yet it's this thing that happens, right? So I feel like there needs to be like more education on that, especially with fathers. And like this is going to be a very stressful transition no matter how easy your baby is because sleep deprivation is real and Mm. crying is real and biology is real. So just like 
I guess, understanding more of like your responses that are going to happen. Because I think if you can put a name on it or if you can kind of make sense of it, like, hey, like obviously it's a theory. To me, it makes sense. But then you can kind of like identify it and then take a step back. And then I feel like you would have a lot less of these incidences if you just had more education. Yeah. It was like a switch because there's sleep deprivation. Like you're just so tired. You're automatically going to be on edge. You had a short fuse. And once I... I leaned on some of the, like the neuroscience books and psychology books that I've read in the past and like this book Sapiens that I've, I'm like in love with. I leaned on that. And once I clicked and was like surrendering to biology and understanding that these reactions are just my 100,000 year old neocortex telling me that there's a threat or there's a potential threat and just surrendering to that, all of a sudden it went away. Like it was That's like so that week, that week that I actually like made this discovery, it went away the anxiety, the fear. And I connected even more than ever with the infant. I will say, I think I still have PTSD from everything (laughs) from the pregnancy (laughs) to the birth. And I think that affects things. And I think the sleep deprivation is a part of it. But I think that support network, and this is a huge topic we discuss on the podcast, is such a ginormous part of it. I think men who have a lot of guy friends are still not used to discussing their feelings, you know, Mm -hmm. with those other guy friends. And especially when dads talk to other dads, just because they have a kid doesn't mean you're going to bond. And when I made my first real dad friend, that was a game changer for me. And I met him because he was brave enough to join a mom's group. And they were like, he had to fight his way in because they wouldn't let him join the (laughs) online mom's group. And I had been to a lot during my extended paternity leave. I had been to different classes and the moms kind of ignored me like I had the plague. And I feel like I'm a pretty friendly guy, but they just wanted to talk to other moms. And I wasn't necessarily in a place where I could express it's as much on me that I was feeling alone and that I needed support. So I just kind of was offended by that. And I remember times when all of this added up to me being a very patient, empathetic individual and in my relationship with my wife being kind of the rational, I don't like the word rational, but being the kind of in touch with my emotions partner. I remember the baby screaming in my arms and me being like, I just can't take him. You take him," and walking out the door. And I literally walked out the door for five minutes just to clear my head. But I remember it going, who is this person? How did you become this? And I actually think in my opinion, it's less to do with men as it is to do like that men are made this way or there's a fault in men and more to do with the fact that there's this baby and this entity has grown from nothing to a living being well inside of the mom. And so it knows the mom's scent and it hears the mom's voice and sounds 24 hours a day. And it's in this black cave and all it has is its senses to be able to get familiar with the mom. And as much as I could talk to the baby from the outside in the muffled way, they can't see me, they muffled hear me, but there's just not that bond. So I'm a stranger when the baby comes out. And as much as there might be something magical, I remember when my baby first took my finger in the knee cue and I felt like we are one, we are <laughs> we are connected. There was still this, it's just factual biology that he's still learning who I am. And I don't think as guys, we get credit for that. We're often told that you're the dad, do the equal amount of work, but the baby doesn't want me. And so I need to be okay with that. And I need to find ways to connect like when the baby's sleeping and doing night feeds. 
But also, I think this is very racy topic. Candace and I talked about it a little earlier, but I think sometimes the boob is used against the dad. So sometimes moms will breastfeed and they don't want to pump. Well, that's fine, but you're actually stopping me from having a moment to bond with my baby by feeding him with a bottle. I wanted my wife to breastfeed as long as she was willing, but I also was very eager for her to stop because I knew it would put us on a little more even ground. And whenever she would try to boob him to bed, it was like the second she would move, he would scream. And it's a lot easier to put him to bed with a bottle than to get him off the boob. There's just something intrinsically connected that alienates me from the experience. I remember one night I rocked my son. I refused to give up and wake my wife. It was my night feed and he was screaming and I closed the door and I rocked him on a ball for an hour straight saying, you're safe, you're safe. And I think it's a key word now because now he's almost two and you're safe works for Mm -hmm. him because I literally that night, I did not stop. But I remember that things were different after that night. It was almost like something in his brain said, you didn't give up on me. I screamed at you for an hour and you stayed. Mm -hmm. You passed the test. And he just let down his guard just a little bit more with me for sticking through and getting him to sleep and not going and getting mom that night. And it's like a lot of moms wouldn't allow that. My wife is the deepest sleeper on the planet, so she wasn't even aware that it was happening. But, (laughs) But just like a lot of moms would come in and go, just give them to me. And I feel like fighting through made me feel a little more like a hero and gave us that moment to connect. And a lot of guys just don't get that for various reasons. And then we blame them and create shame for them in the fact that they're not having the most patience and they're not connected. Like there's something genetically wrong with men. But I think we have to take circumstances into account. Yeah, I think fathers need to find those small wins as soon as possible. Without that like positive feedback, you can get down on yourself. And that's an yes. anything. That's, that's such in life. And shame is such a big thing for men in general. I think a lot of times when you're not discussing your feelings, you're silently thinking maybe there's something wrong with you. So finding at least one person, you know, that dad friend I found just being like, oh, you had that happen too, is such an amazing thing to realize we are all so flipping similar if we just take a time to talk to each other about it. So what are some like good resources that you would give to new dads like to find dad friends? Because obviously like Facebook is riddled with mom groups. Like you can like there's just hundreds and thousands of them everywhere and like meetups. And I think that it's probably a lot harder to find like daddy groups. So like how do you search and find those? So I have not successfully found a lot of actively involved dad groups and those that that I have found, to be honest with you, are activities that dads can do with their kids, with other dads, but they're not focused at all on feelings or vulnerability or discussing common situations and common emotions. That's why I created the podcast. I feel like even with a lot of the podcasts out there, there's starting to be more and more dad podcasts. But I think that one of the reasons we've kind of struck a chord is because most of the podcasts out there for dads are like, we are men. (laughs) And we like adventure and we are fathers. And it's like, it's not really touching on what a lot of the dads need. I heard one podcast where it was like a guy being like, I'm goofy and I'm, I don't like my kid that much, but I'm a dad. Hey, Joey Lawrence, what's your favorite book to read to your kid? Cool. Thanks for coming on. And it's like, (laughs) we try with the podcast to go deep. 
and to talk mm-hmm. about the feelings and to try and express that. And I've always embarrassingly, I read a dad book early on. Someone sent to me, I will not name it. It was like very pseudo machismo. He was like, if you want to be a girl, you could set up a date night and you'll probably get laid from it. And you could talk about your feelings with your wife and things you're excited about. And it was just like, you could tell by the dedication that he was a very sensitive guy, but he was trying to put this on because he thought that's what other men would connect with instead of being brave enough to just express what he was actually feeling. And I think it's hard to find a lot of resources like that. So we created the podcast for that reason. And we also are working on something that will be announced soon that is for dads to be able to find other like-minded dads. Mm -hmm. But there are very few groups like that out there. I will say we just, have you ever heard of The Dad? It's It's a dad meme account on Instagram. They have over a million followers. And I've always been very much against dad memes and kind of dad jokes. And I feel like it's like the opposite of a vulnerability, you know, make a joke about it. But I just had the the founder on for an interview. And it was a beautiful interview because I realized not only is he just like me, he's a very beautifully vulnerable and in touch with his feelings dad, but simultaneously there are dad memes out there that are negative, but that's not what they do. And I think I always dismiss them And when I started to kind of dive in and research, I was like, oh, there was this meme of Joey and Phoebe from Friends. And Phoebe's like, go to bed. And he was like, um, and she was like, go to bed, go to bed. And then Joey says, can I get a glass of water? And I was like, oh my God, that's what my son does every night. It's like his (laughs) excuse to not go to bed. And I was like, it made me feel not so alone. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes just that can make a dad not feel alone. Mm-hmm. You know, searching for dad memes. And I never thought that would work for me. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you find what works for you. But I think slowly but surely we're getting more and more resources, mm-hmm. you know, and hopefully we'll announce soon our new project that's going to help with that. But I agree with you. It doesn't exist completely right now. And I hope that's changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do too. And We kind of touched a little bit about balance and I guess like scorekeeping. So that was like probably some of the biggest advice that I got. I can't remember where I read it or who said it, but it was essentially saying like no matter what, the workload is not going to be 50-50. Like there are going to be days where one of the parents is just pulling more weight and that's fine. So where you get into trouble is um, kind of like keeping a scorecard and saying, you know, well, I did this many feeds or this many diapers and this many naps and then getting, you know, a little bit angry at the partner that maybe wasn't there as much that day. And then on top of that, you're also juggling your career for most people. So as like, I guess from like your experience, what would you say is like a good way to kind of like achieve or strive, I should say, strive for balance? Because I feel like balance is always something that we're just trying to get. Absolutely. I think there's two answers to that. One is flow, and one is almost a separation of church and state. So my wife has tried many times to take over bedtime. She sees how much I live it, and she's like, maybe I'll do bedtime tonight. And it's like, no, that is mine. You know, like, And I feel like that is something a lot of times parents try and co-do things And I think that's dangerous because when my wife takes on a lot of responsibility, I don't fight her anymore. I just walk away. I'm like, okay, you're going to do the diaper. I'm not going to fight you. Do the diaper. You know what I mean? And then she's like, why aren't you helping? And it's like, because you're doing it. 
So I feel like if there's things that I'm responsible for, Mm -hmm. then no one's going to take that away from me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's an important thing to discuss with your partner, what things are you and what things are me. And it's like the separation of power. So if I'm always doing bedtime and bath and post-dinner, then my wife knows when dinner's done, she's off. She can do whatever she wants or whatever she needs to do. And we don't F around with that. And there's just certain things. I'm responsible for laundry. I'm responsible. I mean, there are no real gender roles in 2020. Let's face it. We all talk about it. But it's like we all just kind of fluidly do whatever it is that works for us as individuals. And I think that flow is such a huge part of my wife never worries about diapers. I order the supplies. She always knows that when she opens that drawer, there's going to be diapers there. The laundry is going to be fresh. His doggy is going to be clean. We have like six doggies to make sure. And it's just, she knows that that's not something she has to worry about. And I know that I don't have to wake up with him in the morning. I know that she'll handle that, whatever's happening. She handles breakfast. And those things take a weight off and they help to to help as co-parents to stop doing the tick for tat because you each have your own things you're responsible for. And if you agree to them early on, you're going to be like, oh, I think you need a little more on your plate, you know? But I think that you can help each other sometimes when if I'm on a call and I'm doing working late and she needs to do baths sometimes, so be it. But at the end of the day, it's like, I think the more specific and articulate you can get about who's responsible for what, the better. That's great advice. That's interesting. We kind of do that. I feel like sometimes, especially with bedtime, we both try to do bedtime routine. And then sometimes it's just like not feasible because someone has something to do or someone like needs to start dinner. Otherwise, we're not going to eat until 10 o'clock at night and then we're going to be exhausted the next day. But yeah, I think like having like solid like you do this all of the time. I do this all of the time. And then it's not something that you're like actively worrying about. And then who's going to do it today or tomorrow? And it's just like easier. Just like you said, flow. Yeah. I think too that I have found just studies as a human being, but specifically as a dad over the past year and a half plus, that schedule and structure is very important. And I used to think, oh no, if you buy a home and and you get things too structured, life's going to be boring and I'm settling down and I'm an old man now. But nothing's boring about a baby. (laughs) Nothing's boring about a kid and it never will be. So I think that For me, the more secure, cemented things that we have, the more that we allow for the freedom to have fun and let go and surrender. Surrender can't happen if everything is always in chaos. And so I feel like for me, the more that he goes to bed at a specific time every night, he tries to nap at a certain specific time, he knows mommy is going to be there for this meal. He knows daddy is always going to be there for bath. It's like, Things will come up and he'll be in a mood, but that makes our lives easier. And I think we fight it sometimes because we don't want to be stuck to the schedule. And you can vary. Of course, you're going to have to vary a little here and there in certain days. And I think it's important to be able to fluctuate, but it's important to keep some sense of structure because it gives them in a world where they are powerless and they don't have words to express their feelings. It gives them some sense of control. And I think that that is sanity for us as parents. And we tend to fight it because we don't want to get boring. But you know, society tells us not to have too much structure. Mm-hmm. But I think as a parent, it's crucial for our sanity. 
I think so too. And I think once we got like really strict with our schedule, like we have like a whiteboard and we like have the whole day like mapped out like feeds and naps and bedtime. And if we aren't like being mindful to that and if we like go, you know, an hour too late past a nap or too past like a feed, then all hell breaks loose. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I totally agree. It's almost like an oxymoron, but it's like the more rigid you are with like those very important things, the more freedom you have during like the wake hours, for example, or at night. And then you have like a more rested, happy baby for it too. And more rested, happy parents, you know, to know. I think that what you just said is interesting too. The balance of rigidity and flow, I think is a beautiful way to discuss parenthood. Because mm-hmm. I think so many of us say, oh, well, you need a specific bedtime. But I don't believe in seven o'clock every night. I believe in between seven and eight every night. If it's past eight, I fucked up. Mm-hmm. You know, If it's before seven, he's going to fight me. But yeah. between seven and eight gives us a flow to, okay, you want another book? Okay, you're having a rough day. Okay, you're really tired. We're going to go to bed right at 7.05. But it's like, it's, mm-hmm. You've got to have some flow in there, but you still have to have some sense of order. And mm-hmm. I think that's, it's a weird balance, but mm-hmm. I think it's crucial. Yeah. I think that the order and like the rigidity kind of feeds the flow because as soon as you develop the order, as soon as you develop the schedule and the habits, then you kind of submit that to your subconscious and then you don't have to think about it, right? It's yes. just, you can allow yourself to just be and that stuff just clicks in. You're like, okay, well, I know something's missing, or I know to look at the schedule, I know to look at the whiteboard, or it's whatever. It's like muscle it is. memory. Yeah, also that muscle memory kicks in, which allows you to be more fluid mm-hmm. and be more present in surrender, like you said. I think that the that balance allows you to enjoy the time with your family, which in mm-hmm. quarantine we all desperately need. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just more. Yeah. <laughs> we can go down a rabbit hole with that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kevin has a two-year-old. So do you have any like daddy questions? Oh man. So the biggest thing on my mind, well, it's like one of those things where like, I'm partly excited about it, partly like dreading it is schools. As like actually picking the schools, like introductions to people that like caregivers while they're at school, like all the above, everything that has to do with like bringing our child to the care of some complete strangers I keep like, yeah, it's just like something I keep processing. And again, like I'm excited about it because it's, I feel like it's going to be a cool challenge to make those decisions and like figure out people and all that kind of stuff. But then also dreading it because the world's lost its damn mind (laughs) for one. And like, so how do you trust? you You just don't know who people are, what their like end game is Mm -hmm. and what kind of social issues they're pushing onto children these days or anything like that. It's just such a weird time. Mm-hmm. I guess it's more magnified now than ever before. I guess it's always been an issue. It's just now it's like on the forefront of, of everyone's mind. I feel like a lot of these things are definitely harder in theory. When I wasn't a parent yet, I was like, well, I do not ever want a nanny. I don't want someone else raising my child. And then with the extended paternity leave, it was very important to me that I was there with my kid. Like, why am I paying someone else to be with him when I sanity wise, I need to be with him? I will say that it took us a year to even hire a freaking babysitter. We never would go out. It was a terrifying thing for us. And we finally had, we let her parents watch him once in a blue moon and a few friends watch him. But that was just terrifying to me. And Mm -hmm. it was because my wife threw me a surprise birthday party that we actually ended up, she convinced me to have a babysitter one night just because of that reason, which I didn't even know why it was so important to her. 
But we interviewed like six before we finally settled on one. And it's terrifying. I'm not going to lie. It is. I don't know how to make it easier except to say that although school is very confusing for absolutely every parent in the world right now because of what's going on in our world, I will say there's nothing better for them than being able to assert their independence outside of your presence. So it's as important for them as it is for you to establish yourself because let's face it, you will be an empty nester one day, Mm -hmm. you know? eventually they will leave the home. And I always joke to my wife, we have to start adapting our hobbies now. You know, what are we going to do when he leaves? We don't have that many years. Should we start playing chess? Like, should you practice photography? Like, what is it that we're going to do? Because I think that we tend to, this is our world. And that makes sense. But he needs to be able to be his own person outside of us. There's a baby in our complex. This is too much detail, but... He's the same age as my son and my son runs and and is very vocal and he is a charismatic individual, but he's starting to jump. And as of a month or two ago, this kid was still crawling. And I feel like it's because the parents kept him in the stroller consistently and shielded him from anything. It was made their lives easier, but they were trying to keep him safe. But we can tend to hold our kids back a little. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's nothing better than giving them the opportunity to go and hang out and be wild with some other kids. Let's face it, they're not learning that much in preschool mm-hmm. and in daycare. They're just learning to interact with other kids. So allowing them that freedom is is important. So mm-hmm. I think that's what I held on to when I finally sent them to daycare for a little. It's like, okay, this is for him. Terrifying for me. I'll get some sanity during it. I'll rediscover my independence. But also, he needs this as much as I need it. That's great advice. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I know you have a hard stop. I really appreciate your time. Your perspective is awesome. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram at Dilf Podcast. You can also look anywhere where you find your podcast. You can just look for The Dilf Podcast. You can also search for me, Kevin Selden. And yeah, I feel like we'll be announcing soon some other cool things that the Dilf is going to be launching. But My biggest piece of advice to the parents at home is find other parents that you like. There's no bigger saving grace Mm -hmm. than than opening your circle to another perspective of an individual who also has a kid around your age and who you like, because it just shows you another way to do things and it gives you someone to vent to and it makes you feel like you're not an asshole when you have a tough day and when Mm -hmm. you're frustrated. And it just makes life easier. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, well, we certainly appreciate you using your voice for good and all the effort that you're putting into Mm -hmm. fathers and fatherhood. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking more in the future. All right. Have a good night. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have the time, please rate and review. And you can always hit subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. I hope to have you back.